Well, let's pray. Our loving Father, we ask now that as we come to your word that you would speak to us, that by your spirit we would have a clear understanding of who you are and indeed the remarkable story of the conversion on the road to Damascus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you ever hear that someone is changing their mind, then how do you feel about it? I mean, it seems to be a fairly neutral way to describe a process where someone's reversed their decision about a matter. You're going to go up to the shops today? Oh, I was, but I changed my mind. Okay, fair enough. But if someone changes their mind about something really, really important and perhaps even central to who they are as a person, we're more likely to call it a, a, a backflip. Uh, politicians tend to do backflips from time to time. Uh, I'm going to choose one Liberal and one Labor just to keep things balanced for you. There's, of course, John Howard in 1995 who said, there is no way a GST will ever be part of our policy, never, ever. Apparently not. And Kevin Rudd, prior to his election, said, I have a pretty basic view on this, as reflected by the position in our party, and that is that marriage is between a man and a woman. And later on, he said, he spoke about his change in position coming about as a result of a lot of reflection and so forth. They were pretty big changes of mind. Probably backflips. How do you feel about backflips? Now, some people might say that a backflip shows a profound humility and a desire to grapple with the ideas and to be flexible as society changes and blah, blah, blah. Or you might just say it's a desire to get elected, come what may. Either way... When you do a backflip like that, it can be costly. It's often costly to do a backflip. Today we're going to look at a backflip, possibly the greatest backflip of all. We're looking at what was such a great backflip that it coined a phrase, the Damascus Road Experience, because this is the original Damascus Road Experience. A remarkable conversion of Saul from church persecutor to preacher, from a murderer of Christians to now a missionary and it's amazing, not only because of what happened to Paul, but also what happened by Jesus to cause this conversion. We need to be reminded first of just what Saul was like before. And we see this in the first verse of today's passage from chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Make no mistake, Saul had a deep hate for Christians. It wasn't just that he was sort of expedient in trying to maintain a, a pure form of Judaism. No, he, he had murderous thoughts. And we see that he wanted to kill the Lord's followers, people who follow the Lord. Now, I've never met anybody who wanted to kill me because I'm a follower of Jesus, but they exist around the world. And every day we hear reports of people who are killed because they are simply followers of the Lord Jesus. And there are people like the before Saul who go around and carry out these horrible acts. It sounds a little bit, without being too ironic here. It's kind of like what the Nazis did as they went from house to house arresting the Jews, men and women and children. 
taking them in chains off to prison. It was an ideology that ultimately was horribly irrational, and so was Saul's. Saul's ideology was irrational. It was a deep hate for Christians. But now he's got his little letter in the pocket from the high priest, the highest ranking Jewish official, and he has embarked on the 300 kilometer journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. It'll take a half an hour, half a day to drive there. I reckon it must really be about a two week journey on foot, which he would have taken. And on the way, to persecute the way, we read this happens, verse three. As he was approaching Damascus on the mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right at that point, Saul was struck by a light and all he could do was fall to the ground. I remember driving on the highway over near Sydney Airport a number of years ago. And as I was driving there in the evening, suddenly this booming light came and hit me and there was this loud rushing noise like a wind and I was sitting there in the driver's seat and I ducked like this. Uh, it turns out, I think, that it was an overzealous pilot turning on the lights to land and shining up my car on the process. But it was terrifying. I wonder if that was a little bit was like with Saul uh, before planes were invented and maybe didn't have the same whooshing noise of the airline, but it certainly had the bright lights. And it would have shocked him. It terrified him. And it came with a voice packaged in. It said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The attacks upon Jesus were felt directly by him. When his people were attacked, he was attacked. And with this position of forced humility, Saul now asks in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Uh, Saul says, who are you? And Jesus says, as he did so many times on earth, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the true shepherd. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. It's an incredible connection, isn't it? Because you could say, I am Jesus, the one whose followers you are persecuting. But no, he says, what you do to them, you're doing to me. We've got a remarkable connection here with Christ. We are the body of Christ. His spirit is with us. And being part of the body of Christ means that when a bit of us hurts, we all hurt. You know what it's like if you stub your toe and you get out of bed and you, ouch, and that little injury down there will affect the whole body. With Jesus, when one part of the body was being persecuted, injured, the whole body felt it. And indeed, Jesus felt it as well. And indeed, this means that the fight that Saul had with the Christians, this little splinter group from Judaism, was actually now a fight with Jesus. And at that point, Jesus says to him, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now the hunter became the hunted. Jesus himself has turned the tables. 
Now, I often think that Saul was just sort of on his own, wandering along to Damascus with a letter in his back pocket. But he would have been with a bunch of people. Well, we know that because we hear about them now. And here's their response. The men with Saul, verse 7, stood speechless. For they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. He had to pick himself off the ground, and his companions had to pick their jaws up off the ground. It was a dramatic event. And now from this all... The once powerful Saul is so humiliated and humbled that he is no longer able to see at all, completely blinded, and he's led by these others into Damascus. And he couldn't eat or drink. I think we would be right to say that Saul was in emotional and physical shock. His body was in extreme shock, couldn't eat or drink, off his food for three days, despite going on this long journey. And that's all we hear about Saul, at least for a little while. Because now the action turns to Damascus. And Jesus talks to another guy. Verse 10. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he replied. I don't know how often Ananias was spoken to directly by Jesus in a dream. I'm guessing it was very rare and this is probably the first time. But there he is having had this vivid dream where he's speaking to Jesus. And Jesus says these words to him, verse 11. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I always thought that Straight Street was a kind of a cute little name. I found out that it actually still exists. If you go to Google Maps and go to Damascus, you'll actually find that one of their main streets is called Straight Street. still there. I don't know if the house of Judas is still there, but it was a real place and it continues to this time. But the point of all this is not the name of the street. It's the person that Ananias has to go and see. It's like, oh, okay, Lord... Who do I go to? Yep, I'll write that down. Saul from Tarsus. No problem. Hang on a second. The Saul from Tarsus? The butcher from Tarsus? You know, he would have had this reputation as Christian enemy number one. And Ananias would have been right to say, "Uh, Jesus, can I just repeat that back to you? Just make sure I've got... Really? Not the Saul of Tarsus? And Jesus says to him, that's the one... He is praying to me right now. Now, I thought this was quite cool when I was reading this during the week. Uh, you know when you're like, well, it's like when you may be in a room of people and you say, well, I want you to quietly pray to God now and then at the end I'll close. Or maybe you're away on a church camp and you send everybody off to go and have their quiet times or something like that. I don't know how it is that Jesus is able to listen to all of us at the same time. But there's something just that, that goes up the extra notch that, that Jesus can be talking to Ananias at this very moment and he can say, right now Saul is talking to me in prayer. I, I, I sort of can't imagine Jesus, I, I sort of imagine him being like in a call centre. It's like, hang on a second, I'll just put you on hold. Uh, line two, yeah, how can I help? Yep, just see him. Line one, away. <laughs> but no, it's this, 
right at that very moment, Saul is on his knees, humbled, humiliated, talking to the risen Lord Jesus, who has already addressed him. He's in this relationship with him now. And with this confidence, Jesus can say to Ananias, don't worry about it, mate. I'm having a chat with him right now. He's talking to me at this moment. And I've got a job for you. I want you to come and, well, verse 12, I've shown Saul a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Ananias, I've already sorted this out for you. Okay, You're going to go there and lay your hands on him. You've got to lay your hands on Saul. That sounds a little bit weird, but normal, I suppose, in that time of the Christian era, I suppose. However, Ananias is still a little bit nervy about all this. Because he says in verse 13 and 14, But Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorised by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Jesus, he's a Christian killer. You know this, don't you? It's a major test of faith, isn't it? What's Ananias going to do? He's had this dream. Jesus has said, go and speak to the butcher from Tarsus. You know, Jerusalem's greatest Christian killer. Go and hunt him down and visit him and lay your hands on him. It's like, really? To continue that earlier analogy of World War II, it'd be a bit like a Jew being told, I want you to go into a house of a person who was formerly a Nazi but now has become a double agent and is with us. It's like, do I trust that command or not? Well, Ananias does. He entrusts Jesus by obeying his word. That is what we do today when we are faced with difficult situations. Ananias had a really tough one. If he got this wrong, then he would walk right into the firing line. Saul would say, terrific. Well, that wasn't hard. My first victim, he's come and knocked on my door. Away we go. For us, we need to hear the word of the Lord, which is what we do as we read our Bibles and hear it taught. We need to daily hourly make decisions about whether or not we will obey Jesus's voice or not often it's not in such stark circumstances here but it may well be will we will we lie or tell the truth will we go down the line of of sexual immorality or remain holy will we gossip and slander or will we keep that to ourselves Whatever that is, it's a, it's a decision that we need to make on a regular basis. When we hear the word of the Lord, what will we do? And we need to do the tough thing, and that is obey it. Ananias had a very physical way of showing his allegiance to Jesus because he had to get up, walk down, straight street, find the house of Judas, knock on the door, and go and find Saul. But maybe as a bit of encouragement before he does that final step, Jesus says, more about what he has planned for Saul. He says, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. He is going to be the guy I'm going to use to bring my word to the world. And Ananias, you're going to be part of that action right now when you help him receive his sight 
and have this commissioning as he sends off. But this commissioning, this, this special role of the man who would be known as the Apostle Paul was now a man, was now a role that would involve suffering. Verse 16, And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, if we didn't know Jesus, we could see that it was big cosmic revenge and I will make him suffer for my name's sake. Don't imagine Jesus saying it quite that way. Jesus, who who loves Saul, who loves Paul, would, would say, I know he must suffer for my name's sake. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to be hard. And Saul... Paul would suffer, and we too will suffer. Followers of Christ should expect persecution. Uh, The kind of persecution I've experienced as a Christian is real low grade (laughs) compared to the persecution that happens around the world, which is physical, which means you cannot work anymore, you'll lose your job, all that sort of stuff. You are thrown in prison, you are killed. I haven't experienced that. I know very few people who have. But we should expect forms of persecution as we stand up for Jesus. It sort of reminds me of what the Apostle Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 4.10, where he says, Through sufferings our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. We, we, we make up in our bodies for the suffering of Christ. It's, a, it's, a compl- it's a quite a profound concept there that we participate, that our sufferings are actually part of the legacy of the suffering of Christ. Not, not in an atoning way, but in a, in a representative way, that we are part of what is received there by Christ as we ourselves receive persecution akin to that. So what does Ananias do? Verse 17, instantly we, we read... He went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What did he call him? Brother. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, You could imagine him not having that nice sort of warm relationship at that point, knowing that Well, I wonder if Ananias knew of the death of Stephen and the role of Saul in killing Stephen. I mean, he certainly had a reputation for being a murderer of Christians and now Ananias walks in and his first word is brother. How can that be? It is because all of us who believe in Jesus are now part of the family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Adelphoia, the Greek would say. We are, we are part of this brotherhood, sisterhood. We are part of the one body. It is a familial, it is a, a family thing. And with this warmth, Saul can be told by a believer, you are a brother. And then at this point here, he, he, we read in verse 18 that instantly something like scales fell off from Saul's eyes. And he regained his sight. And then he got up and was baptised. And afterwards he ate some food and regained his strength. And Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. The power of Jesus through Ananias' hands brought sight to Saul. 
And he did what so many others did after an amazing event of the Holy Spirit, like at Pentecost. He himself was baptised. How could a Jew of Jews go and do this, this strange ritual of, of this Jewish sect called the Way? How could he humiliate himself so much? It's because he's met Jesus. And he knew that Jesus had changed him on the inside and he wanted to be identified fully with what Christ had done and who Christ was. And from that, we see, that immediate, we see this powerful testimony to Jesus' work. It was a powerful testimony that he would be baptised in this way. But he didn't stop. Immediately he got up, we read verse 20, and he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. Now, we're not told exactly what happens, but I wonder whether or not the synagogues, which are kind of like the churches for Jews, they'd see Saul turn up and they'd say, ah, awesome, here's this high-flying Jewish guy from Jerusalem up here to talk to us about what we need to do to shut down the way. Great. And up Saul goes and he walks behind the pulpit lectern thing that they have in the synagogue and says, you know what? Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And let me show you. And he opens up his Bible and he says a similar sort of thing to what Stephen would have said as we looked at that the other week. And he outlined how Jesus was the the Messiah. They'd be thinking, hang on a second. Have we got our wires crossed here? I thought this guy was a guy who was a pure Jew and now he's saying this stuff about this Jewish sect called Christianity. What? And it amazed them. Verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Yes and yes, but he's had a conversion experience. And through this, they, his preaching, verse 22, became more and more powerful and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. <laughs> he, he's saying, let me turn with you to Isaiah. Uh, l- let me show you through the scriptures, bit by bit, how Jesus ticks all the boxes. There's a trajectory from the Old Testament that is pointing towards the Messiah. And Jesus is the man. And they go, but what about, nah, what about this? Not oh, fair point. What about this? A radio. They couldn't convince him otherwise. And they themselves were overwhelmed with the power of his preaching. This persecutor has now become a preacher. The persecutor became a preacher and was having a powerful impact on people. Some would have said this is wonderful news. It's what we've been waiting for. But others, well, verse 23, after a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. It's kind of the way you do things. Saul didn't like what Stephen said, and so he and the others killed him. And now the shoe's on the other foot. He is now in the firing line. The Jews have plotted to kill him, and so to do that, they, verse 24, were watching for him day and night at the city gate so that they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. He wasn't going to just wander in and out through one of the main entrances to this big area that had a wall around it. Instead, verse 25, 
During the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. Ha! Saul was saved from the Jews. He's really one of them, these Christians now, isn't he? He's really part of the way. So much so that they would protect him. So that they would assist him in escaping from Damascus. And so he heads back to Jerusalem, verse 26. And when he arrived there, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Oh, come on, Jerusalem Christians. Give him a fair go. Just, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt. No. I get what they're saying. It's like, this is the Saul of Tarsus. This is the guy who held the coats as people stoned Stephen. He is the guy who had a pathological hate for Christians and got that letter from the high priest to go into Damascus and start to wipe them out. And now he's popped back and said, hey, can I join your Bible study? I've just popped into church. Can you make me an espresso? Away we go. It's like, really? They were afraid, and rightly so. But into this difficult situation springs Barnabas the son of encouragement we heard of a little bit earlier on. Verse 27, Barnabas then brought him to the apostles and he told them how Saul had seen the Lord Jesus on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. And he also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. Uh, You know, Barnabas, he's a guy who gives others a fair go. He's open-minded, it seems. It's like, well, okay, Saul, tell me about what happened. Wow, okay. Well, all right. Well, you might need me to introduce you to the others because, to be honest, they're they're still a little bit bit shaken up about your past. And so he did, and so he did, and he was welcomed. Verse 28. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. This is the same Jerusalem from where everybody had fled because they were terrified of being bashed up by the Jews. But instead, he boldly preached right there. And he, well, verse 29, he also debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. This is not normal schoolyard debating. You're kind of like, you know, I now call upon the second person of the negative team to continue the debate. Okay, let me get out my gun. It's kind of, this is, this is they wanted to shut him down by shutting him down. They wanted to murder him. And so with that in mind, the believers thought we need to protect Saul. He has had this remarkable conversion and this remarkable commission. And so verse 30, we read that the believers heard about this plot to murder him and they took him down to Caesarea, which was a big port on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And they sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown, which is one of the southernmost points of modern-day Turkey. So they would have chucked him on a boat and he would have headed north, far away from the fear and from all of the threat of him being murdered for all of this. What we have here is that Saul is recognised as a great leader for the church. The one who was once an enemy has now become an advocate. He's on the side of the believers. He's on the side of those in the way. He's the side of those who are the Christians. And from this, good things happened. Verse 31, the 
final verse, the church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. Great peace and great growth, all happening at this same time. And it all happened with the dramatic conversion of this one man, Saul. We must never stop being amazed at just how far he moved. And I tell you what, it proves to us that nobody is beyond saving. When I think of the people I know who are not yet followers of Jesus, uh, there are some who you think are kind of low-hanging fruit. Uh, they just like us, really. You kind of, you'd see them in the street and you think, well, where do I know you from? Do I know you from church? I mean, you're just that church kind of person. You, you dress like a church person and you, you speak like a church person and you're just a kind of a nice church person kind of person. And, I, and everything about you just seems, it would be so easy just to say, okay, just follow Jesus. Okay, well, that was simple, wasn't it? And then there are some people you think, I could never ever imagine them being a follower of Jesus. The way they speak, the, the filthy language that comes out of their mouth, the smut and the innuendo, the, the subtle bullying, the blatant bullying, the anger, the violence, the, the materialism, the slander. All these things, you think, I just could not imagine them being a Christian. So I'll pray for the easy ones and, and I'll evangelise the easy ones because they look just like us and be just like us. And the tricky ones, well, I'll leave some sort of bikey guy who's an evangelist to go and talk to them and that'll be much easier, right? Friends, nobody is beyond saving. Nobody is beyond a dramatic conversion experience just like the Apostle Paul. And so if you... Feel disheartened praying for people who are not yet followers of Jesus. People who are your colleagues, friends at home, in your extended family, people you work with, people you're in the club with, whatever. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep praying for them. And feel the courage to talk to them about Jesus. Because it may well be that, that even though they seem so against Christ, they're ready to talk and ready to listen and ready to respond. But when you become a Christian, it is a backflip. In fact, I think conversion to Christ is the greatest backflip of all. It requires us saying, I was wrong to reject Jesus. I was wrong to live for myself. And now, Jesus, I turn to you and I say, I am sorry. Please forgive me. I turn from evil. I turn to Christ. And that is a massive backflip. It's a costly backflip. It's a life-changing backflip. The cost is great, but the rewards are out of this world. And we saw that for Saul. And friends, it means that we ourselves, when we have those moments when we sin in our own hearts and we think, am I actually good enough to be saved? What's the wrong question, isn't it? God, in his great mercy, saved us while we were enemies. He made us alive with Christ. No one is beyond that.
and praise God that he would forgive a sinner like Saul, that he would forgive a sinner like me. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this remarkable conversion of Saul. And we thank you, Father, for the conversion that we have as we come to Christ. Thank you for forgiving me. If there's anyone in this room who's not come and said sorry to you, Lord, would you lead them to that point today? Help us all to know that your forgiveness is there for all who seek it as they turn to Christ in repentance. And thank you that as you converted Saul, you will also convert us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.